Всем доброго. Hello everybody and welcome to Touch New Weekly, the show that gets behind the headlines to discuss the full-scale inv Russian invasion of Ukraine. We broadcast every week at 1800 UTC. Please follow the main accounts on Twitter for more information about other projects. A recording of this broadcast and all our content can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and a variety of other podcast platforms as well. Basically, all RSS aggregators available on the great invention called the Internet. I recommend the recent interview with our contributor, Ben. He's basically our Seneca of economics with guest Fred Monkey, a shipping, energy and silk trader on grain shipping in a black sea. As you may know, the Black Sea Grain Initiative has terminated and that will have a huge effect on prices of wheat and its derivatives. But we will cover that just in a couple of minutes. Today we have an excellent broadcast for you. We'll start with our renowned, famous, celebrated, if you want, military panel covering a variety of topics from for the week, starting with the Russian and Ukrainian threats of port blockades, as we just mentioned. Uh, this will be followed by a panel discussion on Russia's disinformation and conspiracy, conspiracy theories with the help of our expert, Rosalie. She will cover a variety of topics, starting with what is a conspiracy theory, what are the effects on the population, and example where it actually works. So, without any further delay, I'll turn it over to myself for a short intro on the Black Sea Grain Initiative. I just want to sum up some data and what the Black Sea Grain Initiative it was, or if you want, the initiative on the safe transportation of grain and foodstuff from Ukraine ports. Back in July 2022, the war had already started for about five to six months. Turkey, Ukraine and Russia came to the conclusion that maybe blocking all the ports that were delivering food products meeting Ukraine was not really a good idea to tackle famine and people dying from famine all over the world. So on the 22nd of July, a agree was signed by Ukraine, Russia, Turkey and the United Nations. And we will see why Turkey contributed as well to basically uh, grant the safe transportation of food across uh, the Black Sea and into the Mediterranean. There was also a checkpoint in the Dardanelles Strait for, for uh, Russians to basically check what was going on, what were the products that were being shipped on those Ukrainian shipments and cargoes. But let's go with some data. You can find really a huge variety of data for what was going on, uh, how the Russian invasion of Ukraine has aggravated the global food, food crisis and whatsoever. Um, I think we have a couple of graphs and I'll ask to those who are handling the, the space for to, to come up with, with those graphs, please, uh, where we can see 
two things basically. How the world contributed to a sharp food price increase worldwide. You can see the dynamic of food price index and vegetable oil price index. And you will see a huge spike just after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Then, when in May 2022, solidarity lanes were established, price started to drop. And again, with the Black Sea Grain initiative and the influx of the Ukrainian ports, and those ports are mainly, well, are just free. So it's easy to say. Chornomarsk, Odessa and Yuzhnem. I hope I got the names right. Forgive me if not. Then the prices started to drop. And still, the levels have not been the same at the beginning of 2021. Something also really important is looking at the estimates and forecasts and projections for the overall production of foods across Ukraine. And you will see a huge drop from 80 million tons in 2021-2022 to a projection in 23-24 of just 40 million tons. To really understand the impact of this on the world economy overall, if we look back at 2019, so there was no war, there was no COVID, and we look at Russia and Ukraine data summed up together, we can find that around $11 billion of wheat were exported from these two countries. But the amount whatsoever do not really tell us the full story. What we need to know is that a quarter of the world's wheat exports came from Russia and Ukraine in that same period. So we're talking about 25% of the global production of wheat. And I was uh, telling you why Turkey was involved, of course, because they basically uh, controlled the, the, the entrance to the Black Sea, but also because Turkey in 2019 was the second country, the second destination where those wheat was going. So today we do not want to discuss about economic topics. We do not want to discuss about numbers or mathematics or whatsoever. We want to discuss possible blockades of ports from Russia and Ukraine and your defense situation in Odessa. And we will do that with John and I'll turn it over to him. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you very much, Pierre. So um, I believe we will start with some discussion of the recent strikes on the city of Odessa and the surrounding port infrastructure and then uh, leading to a further discussion of what seems to be declarations of de facto blockades by both Russia and Ukraine. So st starting with these recent strikes uh, in Odessa, there have been uh, a series of two major raids over the course of about the past four days or so, the first being on July 19th, uh, shortly after um, the strike on the Kerch Bridge, I believe on July 18th, which more or less also corresponded um, in, in time-wise with the declaration of these blockades, followed by uh, yet another large-scale raid last night, um, which caused significant, both of which caused uh, significant destruction and loss of life throughout many uh, parts of the city. What's particularly notable about both of these raids is the number of uh, Russian munitions that were able to penetrate Ukrainian air defenses and strike various objects within the city. We have seen reasonably high intercept rates of Russian standoff munitions for more or less the past year or so. And these strikes in Odessa, they're notable for the very large fraction of Russian munitions, which are not 
the typical subsonic cruise missiles. So, for example, uh, 3M14 caliber, which is their standard um, sea-launched missile, a uh, sea-launched cruise missile, um, as launched by the surface combatants and kilo submarines of the Black Sea uh, Black Sea Fleet, as well as their KH-101 um, air-launched cruise missiles. There has been a preponderance of uh, supersonic uh, KH-22 cruise missiles as well as um, a supersonic uh, 3M55 Onyx anti-ship missiles in a land attack role. Both of these munitions present unique challenges um, to Ukrainian air defense capabilities, um, particularly in Odessa, um, given how these munitions are being launched. So just kind of back up a little bit. Ukraine has been able to relatively successfully defeat these subsonic cruise missile threats for, again, the, the better part of the past year um, using a combination of legacy Soviet uh, SAM systems and other air defense assets, along with a smaller but increasing number of Western air defense uh, assets as well. However, this has not historically been the case for um Russian ballistic missiles as well as Russian supersonic cruise missiles or anti-ship missiles. They have been more problematic. Ukraine was able to intercept a number of the 9M723 ballistic missiles, also known as the Skander-M, previously with their S-300 V1 systems, but prior to the delivery of Patriot, that was a very small minority, that represented a very small minority of those missiles launched by Russia. And as far as I'm aware, they have not really been able to, I've seen no documented evidence that they have ever been able to intercept any of these uh, 3M55 uh, Onyx anti-ship missiles or any of the KH-22s with their legacy SAM systems. So they had been a persistent challenge um, for Ukraine's integrated air defense system. What is particularly unique about Odessa is that it is more threatened um, by this Russian capability, more so really than any other part of Ukraine because these the Onyx uh, anti-ship missiles, they're primarily being salvoed from shore-based batteries in Crimea. And given their relatively short range compared to, say, Caliber KH-101 or any of these other systems, I believe it's around 600 kilometers, um, Odessa being on the coast and fairly close to Crimea is one of the most at-risk targets for it. And again, because of this reliance on these legacy Soviet SAM systems, most of the, really all of these missiles have been able to, um, you know, reach various targets and cause significant damage and loss of life. So I suspect what we are going to see going forward in response to this is more than likely we will see either a Patriot battery or a SAMP-T battery, I suspect, redeployed to somewhere in the Odessa area to deal with this threat, given, again, the, the deficits in um, the Soviet systems in this area. Both Patriot and SAMPT should both be reasonably capable of, of, of addressing these threats, Onyx in particular. Um, the KH-22, while it is a very a very challenging threat to defeat, um, the, the one upside of it is that, or paradoxical upside, I should say, is because its precision is so uniquely awful, there is minimal risk of it actually striking anything of military value. The, the primary risk is to civilians and civilian objects and infrastructure, obviously, which is unfortunate. But on the upside is there's not that much danger to military assets from it. 
um, 3M55 is a little bit more, 3M55 Onyx is a little bit more concerning in that regard. My understanding is that its precision and land attack mode is not fantastic, which isn't super surprising given that, as far as I'm aware, it relies solely on inertial navigation for its mid-course guidance. Um, it doesn't have any sort of GNSS or GPS equivalent guidance mechanism. So overextended ranges, that's going to contribute to very poor precision, but it is still a threat that needs to be addressed. Um, again, SAMPT and Patriot should be very capable in this regard. And again, I guess the other upside here is despite this, the good interception rates against these subsonic threats continues to persist. I believe in the latest raid, 100% um, of the calibers as well as the 9M728 Scander uh, K ground launch cruise missiles, 100% of both of those were intercepted. So good performance there. It's just these these supersonic um, missiles that are that must be addressed as well as the fact they're now um, launching some number of Iskander and ballistic missiles against the city as well. Again, that is also a threat that both Patriot and SAMT can address. Erlen, please go ahead. Yeah, thank you, John. And uh, I wonder, um, is there a particular difficulty um, countering these uh, missile threats because it is located at the sea? So... In a in some sense, yes, but I'm not. But it's not necessarily applicable to Ukraine. And, and and what I mean by that is that the the concept of air and missile defense in general is not to simply sit back and try to defend yourself and take no other action. The whole idea is to provide protection to certain assets to give you room to maneuver, to give you that freedom of action to be able to neutralize whatever threat you face, kind of in a high-level sense. So it is difficult for Ukraine to destroy the launch platforms. Yes, they have, for example, the, the Kilo submarines, which are launching caliber, are going to be very difficult to destroy or in any way neutralize or suppress. The shore batteries in Crimea are likewise a very difficult target set. So the fact that these are mostly being sea-launched or launched from in Crimea... It is a challenge, but the but Ukraine isn't doesn't really have a fantastic capability to address that challenge anyway, as is. So it's it's a I don't want to say it's a moot point, but it's of less current significance anyways. And uh, follow up to that is are there any particular systems that would be more suitable on point offense uh, uh, of something that is located at the coast? So in terms of uh, defeating these threats, the Patriot and SAMT are both solid capabilities in that regard. NASAMs, um, particularly if Ukraine has received, uh, received NASAMs 3 launchers, um, if they are provided with AMRAM ER, those should have some capability against supersonic um, cruise missiles, given that it is derived from Evolved Sea Sparrow, which is specifically designed um, to defeat um supersonic cruise missiles in U.S. Navy service. So that would be a solid capability uh, potentially as well. Um, I've seen some discussion of, for example, CRAM, um, which is the essentially land-based equivalent of Phalanx, uh, CWIS close-in weapon system um, that's used for point defense um, aboard U.S. Navy vessels as well as for counter-rocket artillery uh, mortar rolls um, by the U.S. Army. I'm not sure 
it's it's not well described in public literature what its capabilities are against supersonic threats. So perhaps something like that could be useful in combination with you know higher tier air defense assets because again those point defenses are really only useful as part of a layered defense scheme. So those could possibly be of some utility, but I would say that the emphasis at this point needs to be on SAMP-T, Patriot, and possibly AMRAM-3, excuse me, AMRAM-ER for any SAMP-3 launchers they may have. Thank you. And when it comes to um, Russia and possibly also Ukraine trying to enforce some sort of blockade of the Black Sea, um, I guess, yeah, the Russians have the submarines and uh, various ships in, in the Black Sea. But what can Ukraine do to enforce or threat um, any Russian commercial ship vessels or um, vessels in general uh, trying to go through the, the Bosphorus? Right. So to, to give some kind of context for the blockade here, um, I, I'd like to take a step back and kind of give a general overview of what blockades in theory are supposed to look like per international law. So, and I should give the disclaimer that this is a, shall we say, under-described aspect of international law, mainly because actual blockades are so incredibly infrequent in the modern era. The last major one was in the Second World War, and there have been some things kind of resembling blockades in the years since, but they haven't really been blockades, you know, with an asterisk. But typically how it's supposed to work in theory is that a party declaring a blockade against another state is supposed to declare a list of contraband specific items that will not be permitted uh, maritime passage uh, to the state being blockaded. The um, blockading party will then declare maritime exclusion zones, MEZs within public defined areas of sea that any vessel transiting through will be subject to detention um, and search and seizure um, of any contraband on board. And that is how it's envisioned under international law, how a blockade is supposed to function, that you would declare this list of contraband, declare defined MEZs some distance off the coast of whatever country you are blockading. Your naval assets will patrol those MEZs and any vessel attempting to transit through them um, to the blockaded state will be boarded, searched for any contraband, and potentially seized, etc. That's how it's in theory supposed to work. The reality of the situation obviously here is really not close to that at all um, for both practical and political reasons. On the political side, I don't believe that Russia has any desire to um, conduct this blockade and to, well, to conduct a blockade in general that is in any way you know, compliant with the international norm for how it's expected to be carried out. And more from a practical standpoint, and this is true for both Ukraine and Russia, neither of them really have the ability to conduct a quote-unquote a close-in blockade that is fairly close to the shore that would involve um, the capability to board and search vessels. Neither of them really have that capability. On Russia's side, the whole issue is that most of these merit, most of these vessels are transiting to Ukrainian ports, essentially hugging the coast. They're transiting 
um, through Romanian waters. And then now I believe the new route is from Romanian wa territorial waters directly into Ukrainian territorial waters. That is well within the distance of Ukrainian anti-ship missile batteries on the coast, Neptune and Harpoon, for example. So Russian vessels, practically speaking, can't get close enough to actually detain and search any vessels transiting to Ukrainian ports because they will be engaged and destroyed by Ukrainian uh, shore batteries. And then from Ukraine's perspective, they don't, they physically lack the capability to enforce any kind of close and blockade because they don't have any surface vessels to begin with. So that puts us in a situation where we're more likely to see a blockade at a distance. Um, and there's a couple ways that this could be implemented. Russia does have fairly significant capabilities potentially in this area. And this is kind of where things totally depart from international law and international norms in the sense that if you're not searching vessels, your only recourse is to directly either sink them or in some way threaten them with being sunk, which is um, you know directly illegal under international law. Um, so in Russia's case, they do have significant assets to be able to do that from a significant distance. They have um, supersonic anti-ship missiles. Um, Onyx, for example, is launched by surface combatants. Um, as well as 3M54, which is the supersonic anti-ship version of Caliber, which is also, I believe, launchable from their sur surface combatants as well as their submarines. Um, there are um, shore batteries, again, capable of launching Onyx and the subsonic Case 35 anti-ship missile from Crimea. Case 35 is also air-launchable by VKS, uh, Russian Aerospace Forces, fixed-wing aviation, not to mention those kilos also have torpedoes and they can lay seabed mines. So their capability to directly kinetically threaten Ukrainian shipping um, to the black or to Ukrainian ports, I should say, is fairly substantial, at least it would seem to be. Um, and they can do all of that from essentially beyond the range of um, Ukrainian air defenses and Ukrainian anti-ship batteries on the shore. So if they wanted to just start trying to sink ships, they probably could do so. Um, I'm not sure if they will. That's obviously a big political leap for them in terms of just directly targeting shipping affiliated with third party countries in the Black Sea. Um, that is, you know, that creates a situation that they potentially could not control politically. So it's an open question whether or not they will pursue that avenue. Um, they could obviously try something more subtle, such as laying seabed mines close to the shore with their kilos and then essentially just having that threat there private insurers would unlikely be able be unwilling to insure vessels and their cargo transiting to ukrainian ports and that could then have a knock-on effect that dries up shipping so there's a number of different ways they could pursue this if they wanted to um of varying intensity from ukraine's standpoint they they have much fewer capabilities in this regard um shipping for the most part can kind of skirt around the range of neptune or harpoon launched from the shore to reach russian ports either in occupied crimea or um, those in russia itself and ukraine doesn't have much of a reliable recourse to deal with this um they have their their usvs their unmanned um uh essentially kamikaze um naval drones for for lack of a better term those could potentially be used to target shipping if they wanted to. Um, there's a number of challenges there, but it's possible. They could try to pursue some sort of air-launched air anti-ship missile. 
such as, say, an air-launched adaptation of Neptune, which was a previous project that I believe stalled at some point prior to the invasion. It was never completed, as far as I'm aware, or try to pursue an integration and combination with the, the United States and the UK, for example, such as integrating Harpoon onto, say, an SU-27, MiG-29, SU-24M, etc., that would be an option to extend their reach, but then the issue there is they would then need to directly contend or you know contest the air over the Black Sea with the VKS, which is probably not a winning proposition for them, given given that and just from from purely technical standpoint, Ukrainian fixed wing aviation is woefully technically technically inferior to the VKS. Um, it would just not be. A good time, uh, just to, to put it bluntly. Um, so they could try to pursue that, but it, there would certainly be significant risk to them doing so. Yeah, and of course, this would. I, I think it's more theoretical um, because the, the the. I don't think that the the Western allies of Ukraine would like to uh, equip uh, Ukrainian airplanes with anti ship missiles to. Sh- you know, enforce the blockade. Uh, I guess that would be uh, quite uh, difficult. Um, I think we're going to move ahead to the battlefield updates. And uh, Andrew, um, what kind of news do you have for us today? Well, uh, um, unfortunately, a lot of the news isn't uh, great. Um, but I, I'll, I'll start uh, in the Zaporizhia region. Um, so uh, just south of Zaporizhia, there is the town of uh, Kamienska. This town has been the, a frontline town for a very long time, um, uh, with, with almost no changes over this this period. Uh, for and by a long time, I mean since like last March. Okay, so uh, but uh, yesterday, the a, a Russians uh, a Russian source um, they're called uh, "Don't Stop War." They're you know the typical propagandist type people anyway uh they they posted the video of a ukrainian assault south of this town which was approximately um uh one kilometer further south than we had ever seen ukraine in this particular area so that was that was somewhat interesting um we don't know what this assault was it could have just been recon we don't really know what happened or what the result was uh but the fact that Ukraine was that far south was interesting. Um, now, uh, moving a little bit further east towards uh, uh, Robotina, the uh, Ukraine has had, um, uh, from what I can tell, a an unsuccessful assault near the town, not into the town, but uh, also very, very close to the town. So we're talking um, less than 300 meters away from entering the town itself. Uh, that's that's the, the closest... Um, geolocated footage that we can find of, of Ukrainian forces. And this was uh, this uh, was a Bradley getting struck by a, um, a, uh, a kamikaze drone, a Russian kamikaze drone. So, um, so Ukraine has been assaulting very near to this town. Um, I don't know if they've attempted to enter it yet, um, but it appears that this assault was... Uh, most likely repelled from from all the evidence that we can gather at the moment. Um, now, moving uh, a little bit further east towards um, the the Novoselivska sort of uh, area. Um, uh, yesterday, we've had a, a video published uh, by the Russians of a 
very large bomb blowing up in Staromayorska. Uh, now, obviously, Staromayorska is a town that is currently controlled by Russia, um, and it's under assault by Ukrainian forces. So a rather large bomb, it looks like a 500 kilogram bomb exploding in the town itself, um, hints at uh, more success in the town um, than we've really kind of uh, seen direct evidence of otherwise. Uh, so so that, that is something interest, interesting. Uh, similarly, the, the town that's pretty much adjacent to this, there's a, a river in between, um, but but Yerozhiny, uh, this town, uh, we've had some videos of helicopter, um, uh, Russian helicopters attacking Ukrainian um, armor and vehicles assaulting the town. So these two towns appear to be under direct assault. Um, Staromayorsky uh, may be about 50% contested at this point, maybe one-third contested. Um, now, uh, other areas of the battlefield, um, uh, like uh, getting towards uh, Marinka, just north of Marinka, there is the city of Krasnarevka. Uh, Russia did a rather large uh, assault on a mine shaft, which is just south of Krasnarevka. It's about uh, maybe 40% of the way between Krasnarevka and Marinka. So it's in this, you know, highly contested area that's been fought over for about, you know, nine years or so. Um, now this is, the original assault was most likely a total failure. And it also led to, um, maybe indirectly led to the death of a uh, rather famous Russian propagandist. Um, uh, there have been follow-up assaults that appear to be maybe mildly successful. Uh, we have drone uh, video of Ukraine uh, dropping grenades and other such explosive devices into this mine area. Um, so perhaps it is under some sort of uh, control by by the Russians, although whatever control they have would be relatively minor, considering they've been unable to move vehicles into the area. It would be purely infantry and probably very small numbers of infantry at that. Um, now, uh, getting closer to uh, the Bakhmut area, um, in Kleshivka, there, there appears to be some minor um, Ukrainian successes. Now, Russia is pushing in tons of reinforcements, uh, mostly infantry, into the Kleshivka area in an apparent attempt to desperately cling on to the town. Um, they've been uh, reportedly taking large casualties, although there's no actual direct evidence of that. Uh, it's mostly just Ukrainians saying so, um, which is, you know, of a, maybe not uh, uh, a trusted source. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, they might be exaggerating. Um, north of, of Bakhmut, I, I have no particular news up until we get into the um, the Kremena area where Russia appears to be slowly advancing through the, uh, the forested area south of Kremena. They're moving south from the town of Dubrova. Um, how much success they've had, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe a few hundred meters here and there. Uh, uh, but the fighting is is rather intense. Uh, so, um, but but then again, the, the, this intensity has been going on for quite a long period of time. Now, moving just north of Kremena, um, if you imagine uh, um, the, there's the towns of uh, of Kuzemivka and uh, Novoselivska, um, which have been kind of kind of probably uh, 
easy to recognize town names. These are towns that are south of Kupiansk and uh, northeast or, or northwest of Svatoda. Uh, now, uh, and then there's Kriminat, which is just south of Svatoda. So if you imagine about halfway between like Kriminat and Svatoda, there is a little town called uh, Karmazinivka. Now, uh, this town is on the Jerebets River. And uh, recently, over the past seven days or so, six or seven days, Russia has launched a, a rather large, um, or maybe uh, high intensity is might be the better word rather than large, uh, but they're doing an attack west from, from this town. Uh, they've crossed uh, the Jerebets River. Um, they crossed it several days ago at this point. Um, and they've been continuing uh, further and further west. Um, they've now gotten very close to a tiny, tiny settlement of uh, Novoyehrivka. Now, this settlement itself doesn't particularly matter, um, but it shows that um, that they've they've broken through um, what I would call the, the first line of, of the Ukrainian defense in this area, and they're getting very close to another town or larger town, I guess, which is uh, called. Uh, Chernashchina, <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, Chernashchina. Uh, anyway, so this town uh, is at the the kind of the top of a hill that Russia is currently climbing up of. Uh, now, when I say that they're climbing up the hill, they've mostly climbed to the hill already. Um, at this point, there's maybe an elevation difference of a few meters, like five meters, until they get to the tippy top of the hill, and then after that's all downhill, obviously. So. Um, this this kind of uh, this breakthrough here is a bit alarming. Um, I, I've seen a lot of Ukrainian sources claiming that this was all a gray area to begin with, which I don't actually think is true. Um, uh, but yeah, this uh, one one important point about this breakthrough, uh, maybe it's not a breakthrough, but anyway, this this intensity of combat. Let's just put it that way. Uh, uh, one important point is that. Russia dramatically outguns Ukraine, at least in this little localized area, which is approximately five kilometers by five kilometers. Um, so that, that that's roughly how far they've moved. It's uh, between like, um, if you go from the, the, the closest point to the furthest point, it's about seven kilometers, but all, altogether it's probably around five. Um, so uh, in, in this localized area, Russia's artillery is dramatically outgunning the Ukrainian uh, artillery uh, and they've been crushing Ukraine um, with this this firepower uh, so that that is kind of the issue at the moment um, from what I understand Ukraine is sending in uh, various reserves into this area trying to stabilize it um, I don't know how well that's going at the moment I guess we're gonna have to wait at least a day or two to see what happens because it seems that every day Russia has advanced uh, at least a kilometer uh, of, over the past like uh, five or six days. So, um, so uh, uh, we hope that it can stabilize. Otherwise, uh, Russia will continue pushing up and then down this hill into the into the next valley. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of the the overall situation at the moment. Uh, there's not too much positive to say, but uh, that's that's what it is. Thank you very much, Andrew. And yeah, but there's been a lot of talk about uh, Russia amassing forces uh, in this area. 
Um, and we see now where they're putting their efforts. And I, I wanted to move to CJ because I wanted to ask you what the Ukrainians could do to counter this and if the newly delivered DPICMs uh, could be used in any great effect to any great effects uh, in this area uh, to counter uh, what the Russians are doing currently. Yeah, so <clears throat> DPICM, I know I, I came up here about two weeks ago to speak about it since it was just so controversial at the time, but dual purpose improved conventional munitions are a, a type of round, really the ones we're talking about here are 155s. Uh, which is from the NATO howitzers. And again, Ukraine has about uh, roughly 200 to 400 um, 155 howitzers, depending on who you ask. So they definitely have quite a lot. And as Rob Lee, Mike Kaufman, and a couple others who just visited the front recently, especially near Robotny and the rest of Zaporizhia, uh, Ukraine has a limited advantage in tube artillery, but not MRLs. So this is a, an important time for the battlefield. In this past week, we've seen, you know, about four to five uses of DPI-SPM so far in the open source. Now, it looks a lot like the 120-millimeter mortar uh, DPI-SPM from either Spain, Israel, Turkey, depending on who you ask. But uh, I've tried to start collecting videos of them so, so people can kind of see since there was so much worry about the dud rate and this and that. So up in the nest, you can kind of see an example of DPI-SPM probably being used against the trench now. As many people know, this is not necessarily the best use of DPICM, but you can see there is one consistent thing that Ukraine is doing uh, with almost every single DPICM usage so far, and that's firing high explosives first. So this is straight out of uh, U.S. Army doctrine, and you know Ukraine showing us what what really can be done with very limited rounds, and that's starting with high explosives to to sort of adjust, get close, and then finish off with DPICM. So if, if you want, you could scroll through the video. On that thread and kind of see most of them are being used in the open away from trees and this is not only how you use the weapons uh, most effectively but it's also how you prevent uh, more duds than necessary so again we won't really hear about that sort of fight um, for duds or clearing for you know a long time until this battle uh, has proceeded past the line of contact or the flat but so far you know panic has set in with the russians again they seem to think everything now uh, is cluster munitions hitting them, even if it's just a automatic grenade launcher, regular HG, the, the sort of psychological effect that uh, Charles mentioned a few weeks ago that he saw firsthand in Iraq, you know, it is definitely coming true for the Russians now where they're sort of terrified of being caught in the open from this thing. So again, so far, so good in this regard. And to sort of um, really hone in what Andrew's been talking about, about the concentration of artillery. So uh, about midway through June, if you look at Oryx and other open source counters, something incredible started to happen. And uh, not only did the Ukrainian losses go down, which is very odd for an offensive, again, combined arms breaching operations, you know, you're, you're going to take at least 30% casualties, if not far, far much more. But the, the casualty numbers flipped and Russia started taking more. And so the last three weeks, uh, Russia has lost almost five to one. Uh, five Russian artillery pieces for every Ukrainian one lost. And this is uh, consistent, at least from Bakhmut through Zaporizhia. So again, doesn't really cover the area where Russia is advancing currently uh, near Svakove, but everywhere else, um, this, is, this is happening and it's having a big effect. So it's not just uh, small artillery pieces and mortars. Uh, just today, there was another 2S7, which again, Russia does not have many of, 203 millimeter self-propelled guns. 
Our friend Constantine knows those very well. And uh, these things are being destroyed 20, 30 kilometers behind the lines. I mean, even BM-21 grads, which are ancient uh, rocket launchers, are getting destroyed by uh, Lockheed Martin or General Dynamics. I'm sure John will correct me who makes Gimblers, but they're, they're each getting uh, a Gimblers for their trouble. The question is, you know, really what we don't know now is a 5 to 1 ratio for artillery is very good. It's about as good as you could hope for for a military that effectively has no other sort of joint firepower, really, right? Air Force exists, but they're not able to really affect the tactical battlefields. Obviously, their naval forces are pretty limited. So, you know, having a 5 to 1 ratio on the ground is pretty good, all things considered. But the question is, will it be enough? So we know from reporting from the GUR and, and a lot of other reporting agencies that the front artillery battle consists of about 20 to 40,000 rounds a day uh, from the Russian side. Now, this is a departure from the 60,000 rounds a day of last summer. And it obviously, if you're on the front, it's a lot. However, it's not really enough for defensive. Again, I've tried to hit home that, you know, that Russia should be shooting a lot more. But the question is, not so much do they have the ammo, it's can they get it to the right place in time? Because clearly they're not going to run out of ammo. But if they can really only fire 20,000 rounds a day, which again is is a gigantic decrease from last year, the question is, are they going to be able to um, do it in time and space? So for example, if they are not firing too much on the defensive in Zaporizhia, but they are concentrating fire in Kupiatsk, I mean, that is the most important thing here to consider. Because Ukraine's done it very well this entire time. You look at where they've had localized success, it's when they coordinate. It's when they synchronize and integrate. It's not so much a numbers game, it's it's really more of a timing game. So if if Russia can figure it out, that that's concerning, not so much because they have more ammo, but it means their, their planning is getting better, their execution is getting better, and now it's up to Ukraine to innovate uh, even faster, which, based on everything I've seen, at least in terms of artillery, I'm, I'm sure they will, so... Alan, that about covers it, unless you have any other follow-up questions about DPICM or any sort of long-range fires this past week. Well, uh, thank you very much, CJ. And I, I wanted to ask uh, about this area Andrew was just talking about in the end, towards the end. Uh, basically, west of Svatove, um, the Russians are launching uh, what seems to be the, they, what they can mass in a major attack. Uh, uh, there have been lots of speculation about numbers of uh, possible Russian assault forces the last week. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what could Ukraine do with this situation to put it in their advantage? Because we know that they are trying to break the Russian, the back of the Russian army by basically treating their forces, taking the repulse out, and, and of course, uh, uh, taking out as, as many as possible of the, the soldiers on the Russian side. Um, and, and to my ears, it, it could also uh, uh, basically open up a situation where where Ukraine can can inflict a lot of damage on, on the Russian army. So, you know, flexibility is really important, not just in logistics, but of course in artillery. So there was an interesting video that came out from the Telegraph uh, this past week of Ukrainians uh, with the cluster munitions uh, near Kupiansk, so somewhat close to where this uh, uh, counter counteroffensive is is going on. And what was interesting wasn't so much that they were firing cluster munitions. It, 
I mean, there were some other shells that were blurred out, which was uh, an interesting thing to see. Uh, perhaps these blurred shells were from countries that have not publicly declared the support of um, Ukraine in terms of ammo, which is the most likely theory. But they also, not just that position, but many other positions had up to six or seven round types at a firing point. So what does that mean? They had high explosive, of course. Um, they had DPICM. They had RAMs, which is the remote mine that uh, had great success in Izium and other areas. They had white phosphorus. They had other types of smoke. They had a lot of options. So what's important about this uh, is the ability to be able to quickly change your plans and to give that authority down to the lowest level possible so that junior soldiers, junior leaders can make the decisions they need uh, in the defensive and the offensive. And this is something that at least I haven't seen last 18 months. Most firing points uh, that the Ukrainians have had have just had HE or a few other round types, and they've just been basically shooting everything they have until they run out. But the fact that they were able to build and at least maintain and support firing points with multiple different ammo types suggests to me that the ammo situation is not great, but it is getting better. So the ability to have cluster munitions ready to go. I mean, if we think about why Russia uh, is successful this past week in Svatovay, it's because they can put more people, more tanks, and more artillery in one place at a time, right? We, we talked a lot about combined harms over the last year, but the, the way to break this apart is you sort of negate the ability for Russia to mass. Mass is an important factor in the offensives, you know, as I said before, time and place. And to break this up to sort of negate Russia's ability to move this many things into one place, you know, cluster munitions are a great solution to that. So I would be surprised um, if once they left the tree line, uh, it continued to move at the same rate if, if Ukraine really is moving up reserves. We know they've had some good troops around Kupiansk. The question is, will they be committed to this? I think if it actually is as serious as it might be eventually, then they definitely will. But, you know, unless Russia figures out uh, joint fires or close air support, then really artillery will be able to break up the, the offensive to a large degree. But, you know, that's that's pretty optimistic. The pessimistic side would be Russia is getting better at every war fighting function. But and I don't think we've necessarily seen that across the board. You know, they basically get better when they have to uh, or when they're dying but they're not necessarily, you know, going back to their doctorate pre-war. So it sort of remains to be seen, but more ammo certainly will not hurt. Yeah. Thank you, CJ. I see that Andrew, you have your hand up. Please go ahead. Yeah. Um, one, one thing to note is that the, where Russia is attacking right now has a, a lot of very large forested areas and also these forests are rather virgin in that they have not been heavily shelled in the past, um, like very light shelling, if any. So uh, these these forests are kind of maybe the worst place for these uh, these cluster munitions. And that's a great point, and because they're also not great for artillery as well, uh, whether it's point detonating fuses or, or anything like. Yes, you can create more shrapnel uh, via splinters, but you know if you're in an armored vehicle, then you know some splinters really don't do anything to you. But however, you know I will point out that trying to operate mechanized formations and enforce is difficult under pressure. And what I mean is sort of the advantages you get and sort of the, the protection you get from UAVs, really the concealment uh, and artillery. You know, you also have that problem with, you know, mission command, trying to control forces at a large scale. So it isn't necessarily um, just a beneficial thing. We saw this, of course, many times with the battles in the, the southwest of Crimea and that forested area, right? You know, you're 
Ukraine's able to have somewhat of an asymmetric advantage because it's difficult to put, put Russian tanks in there. But this is sort of a thing that remains to be seen. I know Andrew talked um, maybe last week, two weeks ago, about this Russian composition, but it is not just conscripts. It is about, you know, Andrew, if you could just tell us real quick, who are these Russians that are attacking here because they aren't like the rest of the Russian army? I honestly don't know exactly who is attacking here. Um, I do know that they, they moved in, I believe, like three brigades or so of, of rather good infantry. I don't know if those infantry are the ones attacking here. I wouldn't be surprised, obviously, but uh, I don't know if, if those are the ones who are attacking. I honestly... I know very little about the force composition of this attack. I'm not really sure who's fighting on, on the other side. Maybe maybe someone else does, but I, I don't. Yeah, thank you both, Andrew and CJ. Um, I wanted to move uh, to Charles because I know that you have something you want to talk about when it comes to breaching and uh, that we have seen Ukraine Ukrainians uh, employing very classical breaching techniques with uh, uh, gra gra grappling hooks and uh, basically what we uh, what you talked about uh, a few um, episodes ago uh, is uh, is relevant. Uh, are they having a lack of midlicks, and uh, are there any ways to mitigate this? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, there's a couple things here. So. One, um, we're not seeing, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but we're not seeing um, nearly the same amount of uh, Miklik fires and we'll say vehicle breaching activities that we saw um, two months ago when this offensive started off in, in Zaporizhia Oblast. Um, but then, and, and that could be due to three reasons. One is, is clearly their tactics have changed um, and their... Uh, Operations have changed, as we've discussed before, in terms of uh, not necessarily looking at at things in territory, but working to attrit uh, Russian combat power. Um, and so, therefore, they aren't using vehicle breaching techniques as much as they used to in the past. Could also mean um, a shortage of uh, mine clearing line charges. Um, they were provided an unknown amount. These were often in the in the drawdown um, list from the United States as um, mine clearing equipment and demolitions. They weren't listed by number like many other things were. Um, so we don't know exactly how many they were provided. Um, it could also be a uh, a shortage of engineering equipment. So even the trailers or, or other uh, mine clearing uh, heavy equipment, which we know they have taken some losses during this offensive, especially in the first um, couple of weeks. So we don't know exactly, um, but lately we've seen a lot of um, light infantry assaults, um, smaller unit tactics being used um, in, in the offensive. Um, and it, Now, just to put this in context, actually none of the operations even when they were more mechanized would be considered very large scale operations at an individual attack level um, we're mostly looking at company sized uh, attacks and so on um, but lately now there's been a lot of uh, videos and images of of guys throwing hooks on ropes uh, these grappling hooks um, and I saw some commentators looking at this and thinking, oh, this is how bad it is and, and so on. And I just wanted to kind of put this a little bit straight in that 
That's actually a very normal tool that combat engineers use all the time, um, is, is the grappling hook with a, with a rope. And I just wanted to sort of explain how it's used and why it's used. Um, so we've talked a little bit before, anti-tank mines are set up so that they, they do not go off if a person uh, steps on them. Uh, you can walk across them and the fuse should be strong enough that it will hold uh, a person's body weight. They are designed only to go off um, when a vehicle drives over them. And thus, if you just have a, a pure anti-tank or anti-vehicle uh, uh, mine obstacle, it can be fairly easy to manually breach it. Of course, if you're trying to do a um, an assault uh, and you want to use MICLICs, that's great. Um, but actually, if you're just using uh, manual breaching, going out there and finding them and picking them up, it's not that hard. Um, it's definitely a lot slower than a MICLIC, um, but it's relatively safe. Um, so what you do to make that much more difficult is you intersperse um, these anti-tank mines with anti-personnel mines. What we're seeing right now in the in these defensive uh, belts from the Russians is a lot of anti-personnel mines. Um, they use primarily two types of, of anti-personnel mines. Um, one uses a tripwire, another one is a simply a, a pressure plate blast mine. Um, what grappling hooks are used for is you throw them out there and then you pull the, the hook back to pull any of the tripwires that detonates the anti-personnel mines. Um, this is a common skill taught to every combat engineer still today in, in the U.S. Army. You can Google images of um, soldiers from U.S. soldiers and Western armies throwing grappling hooks everywhere. Um, in fact, if anything, over the last 10 years, um, these have actually been augmented by full hook and line kits, um, which are designed to uh, try to um, work against booby traps, especially if you're working in urban areas. These kits are basically a backpack that has uh, a range of small ropes and lines, um, clamps, pulleys, um, and hooks so that you can trigger these booby traps um, or detonate any of these booby traps at a safe, uh, in a safe way. Um, so these are quite common techniques. Um, now, what I've heard people say is, is that, um, yes, but we do have this technology called the APOBs. And that's true. So what the APOBs is, is a, um, is a simple, it's a, it's a mini Miklik, basically. Uh, it comes in a, in a couple of packs. Uh, backpacks are actually kind of cases that you, that you wear on your back. And this is just a little mini uh, Miklik with a small rocket um, that dismounted infantry can use to shoot out a line charge. Now, this line charge is designed only for anti-personnel mines. Um, these, this charge goes out, it will clear a lane of about 60 centimeters or about two feet wide for 45 meters. So it's about 45 meters long. And um, the soldiers just run up, set up these backpacks, pull some pins, fire it out. Um, the charge goes out and it will clear a footpath through anti-personnel mines. Um, these would be very useful. I don't know whether they have been provided them or not. I, we haven't seen any of them, but as I mentioned, all of the demolitions and mine clearing equipment in any of the drawdown lists has been very vague. Um, 
So that's kind of how APOBs work. It would be fantastic if they do not have them to get them to Ukraine, especially if the tactics of this southern offensive have become much more light infantry, either due to the vulnerability of vehicles from drones, anti-tank guided missiles, rotary wing aircraft, artillery, and etc., um, or whether um, uh, they uh, have uh, a shortage of of the larger Miklicks, uh for anti-vehicle um, ditches. So that's kind of the idea behind grappling hooks. Totally normal stuff. Um, you will see a lot more of them. They're a vital piece of equipment for for combat engineers. Um, APOBs is definitely a fantastic piece of equipment that uh, uh, hopefully, if if not already. Um, the United States can provide to Ukraine because these are common um, pieces of, of equipment in light infantry divisions in the U.S. Army. Um, so I must admit, I have never fired one. I was mechanized, um, but in the, the airborne or mountain or air assault uh, divisions, these were common uh, issue items for common engineers. So that's kind of my update, uh, Alan. Yeah, thank you, Charles, thank, and thanks very much for educating us more on breaching. Uh, I think uh, it's a topic we're uh, all uh, thinking about, but we don't really know enough about it. But you you have taught us uh, various amount of uh, different techniques and and, uh, and strategies or, or tactics when it comes to breaching over uh, the course of uh, the last few months. Um, yeah, um, I wanted to to go. Uh, and touch on something that happened this week that was very, you know, uh, positive for Ukraine in the sense that they showed uh, a, a very quite uh, big uh, show of force. Uh, of course, um, it seems long ago now, but uh, it's only six days ago, uh, or let a little bit more, uh, since the Kerch Bridge was hit again, uh, and the sa same week we also had. Uh, various strikes strikes on Crimea, both the fuel depot in Sevastopol, and I believe that was the first time Ukraine has hit uh, fuel depots in Sevastopol. Um, and yesterday there was a very large strike, or a very large explosion rather, on an ammunition depot in uh, Crimea in the airfield uh, next to the village of Uktoyabravskoye. Uh, I'm sorry about my... Uh, pronunciation uh, and uh, yeah I wanted to ask uh, uh, John uh, what do you think about the strikes uh, uh, on Kerch and also uh, what the effects uh, could be on the long term of other strikes in Crimea so in terms of the latest strike on the Kerch bridge um, I'm reasonably confident based upon the images and videos that have been released thus far that it was some sort of blast beneath the structure of the road bridge, which makes me think it was likely some sort of USV unmanned surface vessel of some kind. Um, you know, maybe something derived from the previous Ukrainian USVs that we've seen in prior attacks, like um, the ones against Russian vessels in Sevastopol, um, as well as a, a number of other uh, similar incidents. That was that would be my first instinct. Um, there's obviously still a lot of unanswered questions there as to what the specific design of the vehicle that carried out the strike would be. Um, again, like is a direct derivative of the USVs we've seen previously. 
Is it something else entirely? Is it not a USV? Um, because obviously we don't have um, definitive evidence of that, just an indication that the explosion occurred beneath the structure of the bridge, um, which would seem probably unlikely for a cruise or ballistic missile strike. Um, but the fact that they're able to pull this off is an indicator of a increasingly sophisticated um, maritime warfare capability, uh, likely leveraging USVs. Um, the range of these vehicles is typically somewhat limited, so the fact that they were able to strike the Kerch Bridge suggests that they have managed to um, devise a solution for this, either a USV with truly incredible range, or they are now able to, for example, smuggle these into occupied territories and, for example, launch them from the coast of the Sea of Azov. So this this would this is well, it's hard to say anything that's extremely specific. It is overall an indicator, or likely an indicator, of an evolving Ukrainian maritime warfare capability. And of course, in conjunction with these pretty big strikes in in Crimea, um, I, I see that this is probably uh, somewhat coordinated uh, as an offensive uh, towards infrastructure uh, in occupied Crimea. Um, we believe that there was a drone strike uh, on the fuel depot in in Sevastopol. And uh, what do you regard as most likely? Um, the delivery method of uh, of the explosives to the airfield yesterday. Given the size of the explosion, um, obviously a, a substantial component of that was secondary explosions, of what it looks like from the, the magazines and the ammunition storage at that airbase. I'm inclined to believe, just based upon the scale of it, um, that it was potentially a missile of some kind. Um, that's kind of my... Also, that, that's my informed speculation. I don't have any specific evidence of that necessary disclaimer, but just based upon the effects on target um, and the just how extensive and widespread um, the secondary detonations were, that makes me inclined to think that it was a rather significant primary explosion, which I would associate with either a, a cruise missile or a ballistic missile of some kind. Or, of course, there, there's other um, explanations, of course. It could have been a, you know, a smaller UAV that was quite lucky in terms of um, hitting the correct target and causing a, you know, a massive chain of secondary explosions. That's obviously a distinct possibility. Um, there's obviously also, if there's still any of those T-141s around, they could have been modified. Um, uh, I guess direct action um, by soft elements, that's something that IS is... It's in the possibility space, although I'd consider that probably the least likely explanation. Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, I just want to note that um, uh, up in the nest, there is uh, a tweet uh, with the satellite images of both uh, Kirsch Bridge and uh, also the explosion or the fire uh, uh, of the airfield in, uh, in Crimea. And you can see that there was uh, quite a large uh, explosion happening there, a massive amount of various different fires going forward uh i wanted to touch briefly on uh weapons aid packages and uh, at least one good news that we've seen um i guess was it the, the day before yesterday is that uh britain has been 
uh, providing a launch platform for the Brimstone missiles. Uh, John, maybe I can give the word to you instead. Sure. So previously, Ukraine had, excuse me, uh, the UK has provided Brimstone 2, and I'm not sure if they provided Brimstone 1, but they definitely provided Brimstone 2 um, uh, anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. The previous launcher that we had a video of was rather improvised. It looks like they took a box truck, cut the side off, and installed some sort of launcher um, in the, the container space of that truck. Um, now it seems that the UK has shipped the actual purpose, an actual purpose-built launcher for Brimstone um, from MBDA. It is a, looks like a lightly armored vehicle with a uh, purpose-built canister launcher um, per arranged perpendicular to the central axis of the vehicle. Um, see here is there should be, uh, should be getting some pictures up of it in the nest. I believe that vehicle is called the Supercat. Um, S-U-P-A cat, one word. Um, it's gone through a couple of different names um, over its procurement lifespan. I believe it was first demoed uh, early last year. It's derived from the, what is it, the HMT 600 High Mobility Transporter, which is a uh, vehicle that was already, I think, in British service. Um, I'm not super up to speed on um UK Armed Forces Vehicle Inventory, but it's been kind of around the block. So this was one of the purpose-built Brimstone solutions that NBDA has been offering along with, I believe, a launcher mounted on Boxer, another for Ajax, potentially. But then these have now been shipped to Ukraine uh, sometime in the past. Yeah, it's interesting to see uh, if this can have uh, an, some effect uh, on the battlefield. I think it, it enhances, of course, in the, the capability uh, that they lack in the intermediate range. Of course, there's also been quite a large uh, aid package announced by the US uh, with several NASAM systems involved. But uh, uh, as, as far as I understand, this is not something that we will see uh, being shipped to Ukraine uh, immediately. Correct. Yes, there was a order for additional for an additional four NASAMs fire units um, placed under USAI. So that brings the total to I believe at least 14, maybe 16. So there were previously um, eight from the United States on, in two sets of package for USAI. This brings the total from the US, all, again, all under USAI, to 12 fire units, 12 batteries. And then there were, I believe Ukraine directly purchased one from the United States under FMS, that's 13. Then Canada is acquiring another battery on Ukraine's behalf via an unknown mechanism. That brings us to 14. There's possibly two other batteries coming from Norway. I'm less clear on that if that's actually coming from Norwegian government from their MOD inventory or if that's coming from Kongsberg stocks. I'm very unclear on that. So at a minimum, 14 batteries have been pledged. I believe two have arrived thus far. Um, possibly 16, um, depending on how the Norwegian ones shake out. Um, it's also a little bit unclear because I believe potentially some components of the other batteries are being provided by Norway um, for Norwegian inventory. So that's kind of just an additional uh, lack of clarity injected into it. But this is a, a fairly substantial number. It still isn't nearly enough, um, especially if we're having our criteria to be replacing legacy Soviet SAMs 
one-to-one. This is still kind of a, a drop in the ocean. Last I checked, I believe I had somewhere in the range of 25 to 30 batteries of Osa's, Strela's, Books and S300Ps each that they needed to replace. So there's still a substantial way to go in terms of um, replacing these legacy Soviet assets with more sustainable um, Western kit, more sustainable in the long term. But this is progress nonetheless. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and I also wanted to chime in on the on on the news about uh, Atacams and uh, what what is the latest news and and. Is there a possibility that the Congress could force uh, the White House to to do something with, to regard of the Atacams? So the position of the White House and the National Security Council still seems to be that we are not providing them as of this current moment. Congress does have some legal ability to force the issue, but the way they would have to go about it is suboptimal. More or less what they can do is they can require the White House to issue a contract under USAI um, to essentially purchase new build attackums from Lockheed Martin for Ukraine. Um, they can essentially incorporate that as a line item in, appropriate, in appropriations legislation that a certain amount of money must be spent via USAI on attackums um, to be provided in Ukraine, to be provided to Ukraine. The president by law must spend that money so congress can compel action on that front the issue is if we're talking a new order from lockheed that's we're talking at a minimum two years before they would be delivered probably three maybe slightly more as far as i'm aware congress probably does not have the ability to compel specific pda presidential drawdown authority line items so some usai thing would be really their only recourse and at best we'd be looking at a two to three year delivery schedule assuming the white house issues the contract immediately and doesn't endlessly delay issuing the contract i think colby wants to add on to this yeah thank you very much and i'll hand the word to colby yeah i'm not sure i would agree with the assessment that congress actually can force the administration to do anything i mean if you look at any appropriation in the u.s government there's typically somewhat of a discrepancy between money that is uh, authorized first, money that is appropriated, and then what actually ends up getting put into the budget, and then what actually gets spent uh, spent from that authorized budget. There's usually some level of discrepancy between all of that, so I don't, I don't think that Congress necessarily can force President Biden to send equipment that he wants. There's a unitary executive at kind of the president's prerogative, they can say uh, we're appropriating X dollars for attackums, either for procurement or even within presidential drawdown authority, they could add in the light item saying we're appropriating this money for PDA for Ukraine and we want it spent on this these systems. And even if the, you know, it, it just, the, the president doesn't have to abide by that. And Congress doesn't have a whole lot of recourse if he doesn't want to send equipment that they want him to so i think that uh congressional pressure is very helpful um but it ultimately i don't uh, i'm not confident that it would force president biden's hand um if he if he doesn't want to um but again the, the pressure on congress is helpful i think i think that um if there's a very strong bipartisan consensus which there is although it certainly can be stronger 
uh, in favor of Ukraine getting attackums and, and other weapon systems that are very much needed, um, having that bipartisan pressure, particularly members of his own party, encouraging him to take this step, I think is is useful. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm not confident that there's anything that could be done to absolutely force the issue. Ultimately, it's kind of at the mercy of the advisors around the president and what they're telling him to do. And uh, there's been much, much reporting in the media about a decision being imminent and that it's been on the table. And the most recent reporting out of uh, the Washington Post, which was just released the other day, uh, is that it, it's seemingly not a, a decision that is likely to be made um, anytime soon. So uh, back on ice, it would seem, which is very unfortunate because Ukraine definitely does need attackers, even though they have uh, Storm Shadow and Scalp EG. These are two very different systems um, that have different roles in the battlefield. And, uh, and Ukraine got we need attackers. Yeah, thank you very much, Colby. And yeah, uh, of course, the, the debate of why the president is not authorizing it is uh, something that uh, could go on forever as a discussion. And I, I think uh, we're not going to go too far into that now, but that Ukraine needs attack camps, uh, I think everyone here agrees on. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you to everyone in the military panel that joined and contributed. And I will hand the word back to Pierre. Thank you, everyone. It was a really great segment from all of you. So just to recap, we basically covered the Black Sea Green Initiative and the implication of blockading ports, also by Ukrainians and Russians, and their capabilities in doing so. The overall situation on the field, we did not have really good uh, news for you today, guys. The last week has been a bit of a struggle. Don't worry, things will get better. So now we have our last seg segments of the day. Just to remember you guys, the topic is Russian propaganda and conspiracy theories. I will hand it over to Rosalie. Rosalie, please come up. I loved listening to your segment just now. So thanks for that, guys. Um, so I'm going to be talking today about conspiracy theories as tools of influence. Um, and this is, of course, particularly fitting uh, with regard to discussions about Russia and Ukraine. Um, the discussion, I think, especially in the United States, that's where I am. So that's where my perspective is coming from. And this gets treated as sort of just fringe ideas that aren't capable of, of causing trouble and um we even see um, journalists who will sort of um, dismiss the idea that it, it has, um, that the effect is significant enough to warrant attention. Um, particularly, we see this with them reporting a campaign, but getting the origin incorrect. And I think that's significant um, for reasons I think will become clear um, as we go. So. But just sort of as an overview, I'm hoping to talk about, um, first of all, what, what are conspiracy theories? Uh, what effect do they have on people? Uh, instances where conspiracy theories have been used as tools. We're pretty sure that they were used 
and we're pretty sure that they were affected. Um, and then, you know, how how do we know uh, whether the campaigns are effective? And that sort of falls into um, the last point as well. Um, so what sort of um, inspired this conversation? I, I wanted to talk about this um, on Tochi. Uh, it's because uh, RFK Jr. last week, um, he made a comment that referenced ethnic ethnic weapons. Um, I'm going to drop a link for anybody who is interested um, to a table of headlines, um, and you'll see why shortly. So stories about biological weapons targeting specific groups that date back decades. Um, it was... Uh, the first time we can find it um, in a significant campaign is during the 1980s, and the Russia, well, the Soviet Union, but you know, Russia, um, alleged that the U.S. was developing an, a quote-unquote ethnic or genetic weapon. This was, of course, even if possible, a kind of a ridiculous claim because um, the United States is is not genetically homogenous. We know today. That the concept of race is not a biological reality it is a social reality and the consequences of racism are very real however they are not underpinned by biological differences that could be targeted uh, so that's really kind of important the idea is uh it's something that we know that uh russia has pursued research into so it may be a bit of projection um, but the claims back in the 1980s, um, they claimed that the U.S. was targeting Slavic people. Um, they claimed that they were targeting or that we were targeting people of African descent, um, Asians, and then also people with uh, non-heterosexual orientation. So this kind of uh, was closely tied to two other campaigns at the same time. And that was the one that claimed that the U.S. created the AIDS virus. Um, and the other campaign, which will sound very familiar to you if you're familiar with QAnon, it is that the U.S. was harvesting organs from children. That was a really big campaign. Um, and the claims were really effective. There were countries that either became reluctant or actually asked the U.S. to address if this was happening. So... Um, these these claims are not without consequence and that's something that i really want to to stress to people um who are listening now in the around 1982 um there was a campaign in pakistan that said the united states was testing on people there now we were establishing a malaria research institute this is really important because people there were dying of this. And we were establishing um, a relationship with that nation. And Russia effectively ended that. And as a consequence, uh, American scientists were ejected from Pakistan. Um, the Malaria Research Institute was not built. So many more people died. Um, those numbers were much higher than they had to be, I think, until about 2000. Um, and so when we say, are these effective or aren't these effective? I think the question that doesn't get asked 
is what is the aim? What is the aim of these? And when I look at them, when other people who are much more knowledgeable about this look at it, they often achieve the strategic aim that they are looking um, to achieve. So that's generally sowing mistrust in the United States, um, weakening international alliances, which allow us to present a united front, very much like we are right now with Ukraine. The, the claims about the genetic weapon What's important to know, they did die off. If you can see, I, I linked the table in my Twitter thread. But the claims died off around 1990. Um, but they they didn't completely go away. And actually, uh, Putin warned about genetic weapons in 2012. And that narrative also resurfaced during the 2022 invasion. Uh, Lieutenant General Igor Kirillov asserted that the U.S. and its allies aim to create bioagents targeting ethnic groups. Now, this is really important. They're using the conspiracy to justify what they're doing. And why is this important? So we had people in the United States who believed this. And what does that lead them to do? Leads them to contact their lawmakers, not to support aid to Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And so the potential um, effects are, uh, they, they can be quite devastating. And that is why I'm a big proponent of us actually calculating the cost of conspiracy theories um, and recognizing them as a, as a real potential security threat. So how do we define a conspiracy theory? So just generally it's an unsubstantiated explanation of an event involving involving conspirators who act secretly for their own benefit against the common good this is an important distinction because what people often do is point out actual conspiracies and those are not theories those are actual conspiracies that have taken place um and they they have evidence that led us there. We, um, they also don't develop. Generally, when conspiracies emerge, it's because of, let's say, a whistleblower who has evidence, that sort of thing. They don't develop in retrospect to explain an event. And so I often um, will tell people to ask whether or not it has some unseen person uh, who is just generally doing evil um, for their for their own good, and then whether or not it developed in response to an event. So the effect of conspiracy theories, what are some effects that we know that they have? In the Middle East, um, acceptance of conspiracy theories has been found up poorly with religious fundamentalism. So um, these are more rigid, literal beliefs. Um, it correlates with anti-Semitism, anti-Western beliefs. Um, and conspiracy beliefs drive a climate of mistrust and, and polarization. In Europe, belief in the conspiracy theory that Muslims are have a plot to take over the continent um, was correlated with discrimination and prejudice. And essentially, the belief in this conspiracy theory made people more likely to commit hate crimes. Oh, I see you've got some questions from 
Uh, I don't know who was first, uh, Charles. Charles, I think, was was the first in life. Up here, if you want to moderate Daniel, uh, that would be lovely. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you, Rosalie. So, Charles, please go on. Thank you. Thank you, Rosalie. Um, regarding, you know, the definition of a conspiracy theory, um, you know, this unsubstantiated claim um, involving conspirators, I, I think that was the essence of it. Um, I, I kind of have a question in that a lot of the conspiracy theories that I see, um, they involve people in power um, of one one way or another in which their their job is to make plans, make strategies, make decisions um, either in their company or in their government, you know, what they've been elected to or appointed to. Um, and so therefore, like me as the listener, you know, I hear, oh, this must this is just totally crazy. But on the other hand, like, I can't say whether they're unsubstantiated or not because that decision or that plan is not public knowledge. Um, you, you, do you understand the dilemma? How 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 can I deal with that or any thoughts on that? So conspiracies, real ones, tend to be finite. So they occur over a specific time frame with a specific aim. So a conspiracy theory, it will generally follow kind of like a meta narrative that is like good versus evil. Um, you know, um, whether it's um, Jewish people, big pharma, something. There's a there's a, a villain, and there's never really a clear enunciation of what specifically they're doing. Um, with real conspiracy theories, um, there are very it, it's very specific. So, for example, there was a case of car manufacturers uh, falsifying results. Um, I think it was on a on efficiency. Well, this was very much underpinned by evidence, and um, until that evidence emerged, there it, it wasn't like there were people who were like, "Oh, they're definitely um, falsifying those results." the The presence of that conspiracy is something that we come to know by the evidence it left behind. So, if there is no evidence, to substantiate something, then it's it's not something like we could say literally anything, and we could say, well, maybe maybe it's a it's something that's happening, but we just we haven't come across the evidence yet, and so it kind of falls into this illogical line of thinking um, that that does lead a lot of people who embrace one conspiracy theory to embrace all the others because why not? The evidence just hasn't emerged. Does that answer your question? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, Jonathan, please go on. Yes, thank you, Rosalie. Um, yeah, the, the Kremlin conspiracy theory you referenced, that sort of biolabs targeting specific ethnic groups, do you see parallels with the conspiracies the Russians used back in 2014, such as when uh, Igor Gherkin claims that uh, Russian soldiers under his 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 control in occupied Ukraine 2014, of course, he claimed that they were fighting, quote, black mercenaries. Um, and this, I, I'm just wondering what your take is on this. Do you think that this narrative has 
evolved or has it remained consistent? Thanks. So the actual specific stories kind of vary location to location. So whether we're talking about Ukraine or we're talking about uh, the former Yugoslavia, it, the general idea, the overarching idea that they all kind of fall into is that Russia is this force, this um, our last hope against these uh, evil liberal elites in the West. And it's generally boils down to Russia good, everyone else bad. And so that is the similarity that you'll find kind of uh, no matter where you look. Um, and in that sense, they're similar. Um, they also tend to play on historical narratives uh, because of the, the importance of repetition and getting people to believe them. Um, but I think that they, they kind of adapt their claims to deal with the problems that they have at the moment. So they will use them to deflect from criticism, uh, things like that. And so that's what we saw with the bio labs. And that's also what, you know, Igor Gherkin was, was doing somewhat um, in, in 2014. The Using that as the justification why these actions, which were blatantly uh, corrupt, illegal, wrong, uh, making them some sort of moral crusade. Does that answer your question? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Rosalie. Okay. Um, another effect of conspiracy theories that I think is really important and another reason that I think that it is kind of a security threat that we need to worry about is that it is associated with the endorsement of violence. Um, and even after we control for other factors, people are becoming more violent. Um, groups that study terrorism have found this. Um, white white supremacists in uh, New Jersey, this is an example of it. Um, they've cited white genocide as a justification for violence against certain, certain communities. Uh, these claims lead them to whether it's not clear what direction it goes, whether it's claiming to justify the actions that they're taking that are wrong. And this general dynamic is similar to um, how we see Russia use them. Now, that's not at all necessarily implying that that's where they got it or they're one in the same or anything. But this just kind of shows you a way in which they rationalize what they're doing. OK, so the use of conspiracy theories as a tool. So. Russia, there was a study in 2020 on on people in Mariupol. And this one was, I think, really important because I think that it shows that ahead of the invasion, that Russia was preparing the Ukrainian population by targeting them heavily um, with uh, propaganda and disinformation. What's most worrying uh, is that it seems to have had an effect um and whether somebody was pro-russian or not is not what determined you know whether or not they believed it so um what they found was many people in mariupol believed um that it was under the control uh that ukraine was under the control of george soros two-thirds of the people in the survey believed that now if a person believed in one conspiracy theory, they were likely to believe others. That's not an original find there, but 
Um, it's it's certainly an expected find. Uh, and the the part that was, I suppose, most most important was that uh, people who believe that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people, they were more likely to believe in all four conspiracy theories. So, um, and this was particularly true for theories about Soros or or Bill Gates, um, and. Other things from this that were really important is that people's views changed really quickly, uh, and the how people felt changed with significant events that were maybe not even relevant to um, what like their their situation. So in this case, it was the Belarusian election. the The propaganda associated with that seems to have affected people in Mariupol. Um, other things that they found in this survey, over half the people believe that the Ukrainian armed forces um, were responsible for felling specific districts. Um, the most concerning aspect wasn't necessarily specific beliefs, but only 5% were able to concretely say that they reject the idea that Ukraine was shelling Ukraine. Only 5%. So... What we're seeing is that even if the conspiracy theory doesn't completely convince people of an alternate um, explanation, like an uh, like they have a concrete belief about what happened, they're unable to tell what is true. Um, and believing these conspiracy theories was correlated with support for pro-Russian separatists, or as they say. I, I don't really think those are much of a real thing. They're they're much more. Um, Russians sent in to um, agitate ahead of time. Uh, and so here we see that the population was clearly targeted in a strategic, an area of strategic importance in this war. Um, and I, I'm very curious, just as an aside of what CJ thinks about that. Um, and the other thing that's concerning is it seems to be effective. Uh, Two thirds of the people surveyed believe that Ukraine was under the control of George Soros. And I found that to be astounding uh, because that belief was then correlated with um, support for joining Russia. I just want to see if there's any questions kind of so far on this. Uh, I think Vasil had a question. And then I have one for you, Rosalie. So, Basil, please. Hello, everybody. Uh, first of all, I want to say, uh, Rosalie, thanks uh, for your information. It was very interesting. Also, I wonder, uh, would you suppose, or maybe you propose uh, um, about uh, what we should do against this uh, against this uh, Russian propaganda and also spreading uh, false information and what is effective, what we can do against. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is a really good question because if what I'm saying is true, that it does make people more violent, that it may make them support policies that are against their interests, what can we do to protect ourselves? The research right now shows that 
uh, in my opinion, that preparing people ahead of time is really what we need to be doing. Because, uh, for example, the biological weapons disinformation campaigns against the United States. Okay, those have been going on since the 1940s, and they pretty much are the same across time. Um, and what we could have done, you know, after the first couple campaigns, and there were 20 uh, distinct campaigns um, from the 1940s to today, is we could have explained to people why these um, narratives are appealing. What it, what needs are they meeting in our psyche? And a lot of these, um, a lot of these claims, the conspiracy theories, sort of deal with big scientific ideas. And these are concepts sometimes that are really like unless you uh, specialize in that, you're not really going to have that specific knowledge needed to debunk the claim. Right. Like the the ethnic weapons is a really good example. If you haven't studied that at all, why like that might sound plausible. Maybe that's the thing. Um, and so letting people know what sorts of narratives are common. So there's that the people versus the elites is a is a key one. Another is the threatened values. And this is one of Russia's big ones. Although I can't for the life of me understand how they sell it. <laughs> and it is that Russia is this this bulwark against corruption um, and 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 will uh, protect Christians and, and traditional values. Um, it's silly uh, because they, I think, didn't they just in the last couple of days uh, shoot a missile at a cathedral? Um, another Another claim is anything about like corruption with government and science that's one um and then also this anything to do with children seems to be um people naturally for the most part care about children whether they have them or not they they care about they're the future of your country right and 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 this is true in QAnon as well the way that people are drawn to these stories is generally like it's a good impulse they care about kids. They want to help. And the conspiracy theory kind of corrupts this impulse into something that serves somebody else. Um, and, and helping people understand what we know conspiracy theories have been used to, to achieve would be probably the most effective, effective option that we have. We know that even just teaching people the tactics that are used you know, that inauthentic amplification online, repetition, um, distribution across platforms. And like sometimes you'll hear the Russian, the pro-Russian influencers online and they'll say the same thing as the diplomat and the same thing as the person at the UN. And they've got this repetition over and over. And that makes it much more believable. But what if you knew that that's what they were doing, that that's what that repetition was doing? Um, you're much more able to reject what they're saying. Does that answer your question? Ah, yeah, thank you. Also, today I saw information that, uh, ah, not uh, one uh, source, that uh, Ukraine uh, hit uh, our our church. It's terrific. One more disinformation spread by Russians. 
So thank you, Vasil. Uh, CJ, I think you have a question. Please go on. Yeah, so I mean, over the last eight or nine years, you know, watching all the Russian claims about striking um, the, that Ukraine is struck with artillery, so many different sites in the Donbass, I guess two sort of questions here, you know, obviously, what is the six? Because I think nowadays when there's a strike, there's enough social media presence and basically just enough awareness to overcome any ridiculous claim. But in the previous eight or nine years, the issue was, you know, human rights, human rights watches and other international groups would go in and they would try and to the best of their ability, it would seem to describe what was going on. But there was a, a layer of nuance missing um, that made it seem like perhaps that, you know, both sides were doing the exact same thing, which of course was not really the case then. And it's definitely not the case now. But I guess, what do you see the way forward to preventing a situation like this from developing, uh, you know, especially if it is sort of like a frozen conflict? Like, What is the role do you see of NGOs in helping stop this specific uh, military conspiracy theories? So I don't think that we will ever be able to stop conspiracy theories. I think, you know, there's something that have they're they're very natural like we find them in coming after the fire of rome we find them in athens um but how um nvos and things like that understand what they're hearing um and how they present it and talk about it is very important i was very disappointed as i know a lot of ukrainians were too with amnesty international um and and really their um repeating and um, kind of giving credence to to claims that just were not they, they just were not equal so for example when when the un examined you know um crimes against prisoners of war they reported that the vast majority of cases were occurring on the russian side uh they reported you know like there were two cases on the Ukrainian side. They didn't conclude that it was systematic um, and that sort of thing. Well, Russia will take something like that and say, look, both sides are doing it. When clearly that is really not what you got from uh, the, uh, when you're looking at the numbers. I think that Amnesty International and a lot of other NGOs fall into this, um, this it's almost like a vanity. And you see it in journalism, too. The The fear of being accused of being biased or, you know, partisan or, you know, d discriminating. Um, this is something that bad actors use to get us to present a fact-based um, account of events next to one that's wholly unsubstantiated, as if they're equal. And in this way, you know, we tell ourselves we're, we're, we're hearing both sides out. I don't think that that's actually ethical. I think it's unethical because you are treating the what the evidence shows is true as on par with what is essentially a lie. Um, I think that we need more education to teach people who are going to be there um, what these tactics are how they should discuss them um because it's it's the same the report from the the reports from the 1980s uh about 
the tactics that Russians use to kind of sow chaos, they're the same ones that they use today. Um, and so just educating people, it's kind of the same as the last question I was answering. The answer is that we need to be teaching people ahead of time how this works. And then the research shows that people will be uh, much more able to identify uh, claims. And, and I like teaching the tactics for another reason. This can be an inherently kind of political space. Uh, with, depending on where you are, there may be one political party that is throwing out more disinformation or, or really embracing that as a strategy. But I don't think teaching about this and making people resilient has to be rooted in in part in being a partisan. Um, and that's why I think that teaching the tactics is so important. I'm not telling people what is disinformation, what is media manipulation. I'm teaching them how to identify it on their own so that they can discern that for themselves. Because really, you know, it's not my place to tell people, you know, what to believe. And so... Um, I do think that that's uh, the way forward. Thank you, Rosalie. We do have another question by JJ. Please come up. Thanks, Pierre. And thanks, Rosalie. I've really been enjoying this conversation. Um, you talked about um, those who, to a certain extent, are unwittingly um, taken in by conspiracy theories. And then there are bad actors, um, those who um, use those conspiracy theories in terms of weaponization, say, for political purposes. Um, and that is um, super concerning um, as uh, elections are coming up in the United States, but generally, um, or just for Western nations, it, it's concerning. Um, so do you and other disinformation experts have any recommendations, say, on a government level or in terms of education and civics um, so that the West can maybe catch up with some of the other European countries who seem to be so much further ahead in terms of recognizing what is going on here? Oh, yeah. I, I have tons of recommendations. Like, I think that there are discussions about this that can be adapted to teach even small children. And that is something that I have done. I have led conversations with uh, kids that are single digit ages and just explaining the concept of fake news and um, talking to them about how, it, you know, imagine something embarrassing happened to you and you could you thought you could hide that from everybody if you wrote a story that wasn't true and you could share that around and they will think about it and kind of understand these these tactics and they're immediately kind of understanding uh, the mechanics here and why somebody would would publish something like false because they're kind of confused by the idea like what is the aim here and so I start with, you know, pretty, nothing too wild uh, when they're that young. Um, as they get older, I think case studies are fantastic. Like high school age, you can go over cases that have happened. And I'll actually link in the thread that I have that I've been tweeting out kind of while I've been speaking. Uh, there's a handbook that goes over different uh, campaigns and strategies that were used. And I think by high school, we should be teaching those to people. 
if for no other reason than because these can be used to exploit people in a lot of ways. And politics is only one of them. Um, you know, uh, an example of one that I think is an unappreciated call is uh, cancer conspiracy theorists. Okay. Um, oncologists will say that I, I've read, you know, 5%. Um, I think it's, we're really uncertain about how many people it is, but a certain number of people reject treatment because they believe that it's all um, it's all fake, it's not real, it's the chemotherapy that makes you sick, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those people die, and then there is a cost to society associated with that, um, to their families. Um, and I think that those kinds of costs are not something that we're yet grappling with. Um, and so helping people understand the connection, I think, is really important. Now, with regard to the election coming up, I would love to see an official U.S. website where both candidates can put information up so long as it's factual. And that would be that. like that is what we know can be like this is and I know that there's official campaign websites. But they're not really advertised in the same sense. Like if there was a, a single source of truth um, that we had and that it in real time could address claims that are coming out. And this is something that Ukraine does 24-7. They have people that are monitoring for disinformation and they're not worried about whether or not they put out, you know, perfect grammar or wording. They just they get it out there. And that matters. Letting people know as soon as you can ahead of time what that claim is um they're much less likely to believe it um so whether it's a, a website or um you know some sort of and i know we have fact checkers but we actually need something faster than that because that can often take a day or two what ukraine does is they have a telegram channel and they just go through what they're seeing like in real time i think we need something like that did you have another question jj if we could be here for a long time, <laughs> I have a lot of questions. <laughs> um, I, so uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, you, you're you saying that, especially in this situation, that it would be a good idea to do free bunking, correct? Oh, yes. But I think yeah. you could do it in a non-specific way because I don't, why, what I, what happens in some instances is it gets politicized and then we can't get anything through. So definitely not getting specific enough that it feels part. So I think we have Basile with an additional question. Please go on. Oh, sorry. I think it's uh, last question. Let me uh, clarify some uh, information. I want to say that in Ukraine, um, we have, yeah, we have many Telegram uh, channels but uh, not every telegram channel is uh, uh, spread true information also there is there are telegram channels which i think uh, they uh, working uh, maybe or created in russia uh, also we have some telegram channels which false disinformation and uh, there is there are not many channels like uh, deep state map or something like that, which have very, I think, very information that you can believe. 
So I think, uh, tell me if I'm understanding you correctly. You're talking about um, maybe website or Telegram channels or websites sort of like war on fakes where they look like a fact-checking website, but they're actually, it's like a way to spread disinformation. I can't uh, say that uh, that Telegram channel which you named it spread uh, false information. I say uh, that uh, there are many uh, Telegram channels in Ukraine and uh, which are spread uh, disinformation. Also, uh, Russian every time, a very long time, works in Ukraine to spread uh, disinformation, to spread false. So in Ukraine, they, uh, they named this uh, to spread Ipso. And uh, it's, this work is continued. So I think, um, you're, are you talking about, you think that there are Telegram channels that are based in Ukraine that also spread disinformation? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. Sure. Yes. 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 Um, that, that absolutely exists. Um, and, and that's another thing that is important to consider when you're hearing claims that in a, in a war, uh, putting stories out, um, that can be part of your military strategy, certainly is for Russia. And so considering, you know, what you're hearing um, and looking for verification uh, that that can happen uh, a number of ways, I can leave the verification handbook uh, in this thread when we're done. Um, but thank you for um, bringing that up. JJ, did you have something you wanted to ask? Yeah, I wanted to go back to the government part of the question that I had before. Um, so what do you, and maybe perhaps this is out of your um, um, area of expertise, but I'm wondering what um, people in North America should be doing in terms of communicating with their governments so that um, um, this sort of education is included in civics courses in schools and that um, the public in general is is made more aware of what's happening, um, especially because AI is coming on so strong right now and we're starting to see some very realistic deep fakes and that um, things are only going to get more complicated. Yeah, so I think on all of those counts, one thing that I always recommend is people need to be communicating with their elected officials. I know that people hate to hear that, but you need to do it because they don't know what you're thinking otherwise. I think if people have concrete examples of costs of conspiracy theories in their lives, they should share those. I, I have sat with so many people whose entire family has been torn apart by um belief in just very bizarre conspiracy theories and these were normal um functional kind of families before before this happened and letting your elected officials know that this is affecting their constituents they're not happy they want something done asking for this kind of education is something that you you need to do if you want that change um and there's all sorts of organizations that can help you do that if you reach out to these media literacy organizations and say, I would love to get this um, in my area, they may have advice for you. Um, in terms of the potential with AI, this really worries me too. Um, 
an example of a way that I think that, or an example of a potential scenario that worries me is, let's say Twitter data is no longer very secure. And somebody got a hold of all of these real accounts of U.S. citizens, their names, their accounts, found out details about them, and then en masse started communicating to the elected officials uh, that these people are constituents of that they don't want to support Ukraine anymore. Let's just use that example. That is something that would be much harder to recognize as inauthentic um, and could have potentially um, devastating consequences, obviously. Um, and so I think that we need to be taking this much, uh, much more seriously. I think understanding the potential um, devastating consequences in worst case scenarios and telling your elected officials that you're worried about that um, it is really important. Um, but when it comes to like what the government should be doing, I think my answer is always they should be doing what their constituents would like them to do. Um, I hope that helps. Thank you, Rosalie. And thanks to everyone who joined the space. It turns out we have a super bonus segment for you today where I mentioned them during the intro of today's space, our Seneca of the economics, our Ben, please. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Rosalie, for this very uh, enlightening segment. Uh, I just wanted to share with you an information that I had missed initially, and maybe you have as well. The Russian central bank has increased by one percentage point its uh, main rate. Uh, what does it mean? It means that it is now 1%. Well, yeah, it is 1% more expensive for Russian banks to borrow from the state. And as a consequence, it's soon going to become a lot more expensive for Russian businesses and consumer, consumers to uh, borrow from the state as well. When asked, the Russian central bank said that they were doing this in order to uh, limit inflation, which is officially at 3% at the moment. So there is no reason to limit inflation if they're telling the truth. So it's very interesting to wonder what on earth is going on. And what seems to be the case is that the Russian government, that's my interpretation, maybe many would not agree, but the Russian government has managed to point itself into a corner. They have to choose now between letting the, the civilian economy crash because that's what will happen if you increase rates because people are going to go bankrupt, companies are going to go bankrupt, letting that civilian economy crash, uh, but on the other hand, being able to run the military economy, the war efforts much more easily because you will have access to labor, you will have access to uh, currency, you'll have uh, access to all those things on one hand, or let the civilian economy uh, go, but on the other hand, um, uh, restrain your efforts. So it's unfortunate uh, in a way that they went for uh, the choose the war effort, but it's very interesting that they did it now in September. Their main rate has been the same for almost exactly a year. Uh, they were probably hoping to keep it that way until the elections in March. 
and the fact that they failed uh, gives us an idea of the amount of pressure that they're observing within the Russian economy. So um, it's it's a, it's it's a bit of a bitter uh, uh, sweet news in the sense that um, clearly they're making the choice to double down on wire efforts on warm production, but it shows that they are facing tremendous difficulties um, in order to, to um, fulfill that option. And at the same time that they're gonna have to start to pay a very hefty price, both political and economic, in order to pursue their wire efforts. So good news in the bad news. And, um, but uh, really that shows that um, fighting Ukraine is creating a tremendous strain on the Russian economy, uh, one that they're having an increasing difficulty to uh, to deal with. So uh, I know that news were not great today, but that decision by the Russian Central Bank is uh, probably excellent and probably the sort of thing that we want to see and could be the, um, the beginning of an avalanche of better news, but uh, that's the optimist in me uh, talking. So that was that was it. Uh, very short point. Uh, and Pierre, uh, I'll give you the mic back. Thank you, Ben. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for listening to Touch Me Weekly. We broadcast live at 1800 UTC every week. A recording of this episode and all our content is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, many other podcast platforms. Please also check our new uh, Substack for our written content. We also recommend Andrew's weekly stream for information from the front lines, which broadcasts at midnight UTC every Wednesday. That's 8 p.m. Tuesday, New York time, if you do not use the metric system. Thanks to everyone on our panel and to all our listening listeners for tuning in. Thanks to everyone who joined with questions and insights. Hope to see you next, next week. And as always, Slava Ukraini. On behalf of the brave.